0: Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. As always, I am your host, Rob Walling. Thanks for joining me this week. Also, thanks to everyone who reached out about last episode, 495, where I went solo. I got more positive feedback about that episode than I have in, I don't know, six, eight, nine months. And I appreciate folks reaching out and letting me know, Let me know what I'm doing right and let me know what I uh, constructively could be doing a bit better. In this episode, I air an interview that I did months ago. It was certainly pre pandemic, and it may even have been before the end of last year. So while there are no mentions of COVID or coronavirus in the interview, I think there are so many lessons learned from the journey of this founder, Colin, the co founder of Customer.io. And Customer.io has taken such a unique approach to thinking about how to build their business and The way that they got it started and the way that they didn't go down the venture track but also didn't straight bootstrap and they were one of the first companies that I had ever heard doing that. But before we dive into that conversation, if you haven't heard of helpfounders.com, you can head there. And it's a collaboration between a bunch of podcasts that are intended to help bootstrap founders and, and folks who maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe are impacted by COVID, or maybe it's just an effort to, to kind of give back. And so different podcasts, a lot of us in the bootstrapping space offered up just a couple, I'll say it's an ad slot, but really it's just more of, hey, here's this company, here's what they do, just to make you know, the startups to the rest of us listenership aware. So this is all volunteer. It's it's a non-paid sponsorship. It's really to give back to the community. So the company I want to talk about this week is called Hugo, and it's at Hugo.team. According to the founder, Darren Chait, he says, Hugo is centralized searchable meeting notes that connect with tools such as Zoom, Slack, Zendesk, and HubSpot, and it's free for up to 40 users. The target market is SaaS companies of all sizes, including brands you already know, such as Atlassian, Shopify, and Spotify, and that they're a good addition to the other work-from-home tools that are growing in popularity. So if that sounds interesting, head over to hugo.team. And with that, I hope you enjoy my conversation with the co-founder of Customer.io, Colin Netterkorn. Today with me on the show, I have Mr. Colin Netterkorn from Customer.io. Colin, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Hey, Rob. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, Colin. So I'm actually pretty surprised that we haven't had you on the show before now, because you've just been in this kind of this bootstrapper slash, these days I'm calling it indie funded space, where folks are raising small rounds, but they want to keep control of their company, they want to stay independent. And I really feel like you were one of the first, if not the first companies to do that. So I think we have some really good stuff to dive into today.
1: Yeah, well, thanks. It's interesting, because I've never... I've never felt like I belonged in any community, but certainly I share more values with the bootstrapper community than I do with the sort of venture-funded, grow at all costs community. But I guess there's there's that great quote from Groucho Marx. I think it's Groucho Marx. Like I I don't want to be a member of any club that would ha- I, I I forget what the quote is.
0: No, that's what it is. Yeah, he says I would never be a member of a club that would have me. Yeah. Right. And that, Yeah, that makes sense. I, I mean, when I've, as I've watched you, it's like certainly you want to build a real product for real customers who pay you real money, which is something I often say on the show. And that is much more in line with this non-venture track startup, non-venture track software. So for folks who haven't heard of Customer.io, you guys effectively built out and kind of launched over the course of, of 2012. You really had your, your public launch in 2013. According to your website right now, your title, HTML title tag is Marketing Automation for the Whole Customer Life Cycle. And your headline is with customer.io, you can send targeted emails, push notifications, and SMS to lower churn, create stronger relationships, and drive subscriptions. So I know you started off doing a lot of email, but now you're in push and SMS. And in 2012, you guys... Designed your first logo. As we know, what's important in SaaS is not building a product and selling it to people. It's designing a logo and printing business cards, which you did in January (laughs) of 2012. I want to ask you a question about that in a second. uh, But I want to get to the timeline so folks can keep it in their head. April Fool's Day of 2012. You guys had your first full time days working on this. You quit jobs, salary jobs with no runway. And five customers paying you $10 a month (laughs) and no savings and no income, which we'll get into in a second, because I think this is great. This is what makes good, you can't make this stuff up. You wind up, you wind up raising about 225k from friends and family later that year, and then, as I said, you know, you launched January 2013 with between five and 10k MRR, and that's when you raised a seed round. You extended that friends and family round to 750k. You've never taken truly, I would say, venture money, institutional money. It's been more from people who are willing to to support your vision of hey, I want to build a profitable company, not go unicorn, go IPO, or go home type thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's pretty true. I don't know if I could say that we we articulated that well in the early days. I don't know that we we sort of had those values, but I don't know that we sort of self-selected investors based on that alignment. I imagine some of our investors, the other investments that they made either like have died or are really big companies now.
0: Has that caused you any issues in terms of investors who did want you to go unicorn? Because some investors, they don't want a profitable business or they don't want whatever a 10, 30, 50 million dollar exit. They only want unicorns.
1: Yeah, not really. Our approach was so we have about 40 people on the cap table, which our lawyer always tells us like that's a lot of people on the cap table. And anytime we need to get people to sign documents, it's a big, it's a big headache to get everyone to sign but what that's meant is that for the people who are investing in a lot of high growth startups we're not in the front of their mind and early on we got a lot of help from people but those people now we don't hear from them too much they have a big pile of money they make a lot of investments and we're we're just one of them
0: so today you have more than 1400 paying customers 57 remote employees you mentioned you have a small office in Portland with about five people, but effectively a remote first company. And you told me offline that you, you, know, you have been public with revenue recently, that you guys are doing 11.5 million ARR and that you grew 32% last year. I wanted everyone to have the context as we go into this conversation to hear about your journey, truly, truly bootstrapping this in 2012 to then raising a small amount of funding to get you to profitability, to help with growth, but never, never taking the, you know, the massive plunge that a lot of folks do. So I'm curious, you and your co-founder, John, left your jobs without savings, without income, expecting to be able to make this work. How did that come about? Because that feels, I mean, these days, that would be an anti-pattern, right? Because we know SaaS takes forever. So what, what was your thinking back then?
1: You know, I, I can't even understand why we did that. It just uh, it doesn't make any sense, <laughs> reflecting back on it. Our milestone that we wanted to hit to go full-time was five companies paying us 10 bucks a month. And how you get from there to full-time salaries is like a pretty big leap. I think we just knew that we had to do it and then we'd figure it out. We'd do some consulting or we'd like start doing services for companies and be able to charge more. But if we didn't take the leap, then we wouldn't be in the ocean, right? We'd still be on the beach and we'd still be trying to figure out how to take the leap. And by throwing ourselves like way into, the, into deep water, it forced us to figure out how to survive and what we needed to do to like realize the business.
0: Right, and you set out to build an analytics platform. What caused you to to alter that course and instead go after email?
1: So we decided in January that we wanted to build the company. And I think in the very early days, we spent some time talking with prospective customers. This was right around the time of Lean Startup, Eric Reese's transformative book. And we spent a lot of time going out and talking to people who we thought would be good customers. And what we learned was, at least this is what people felt. I, I don't know, I still don't know how true this is, but people felt like they had tons of different analytics tools that helped them understand their business. But the struggles that they were having were that, they could see what was going wrong, but they couldn't influence it. And we heard that a few different times. And then we thought to ourselves, like, with that analytics data, we can make something happen. We can send an email. And hey, if we're embedded into a website or a mobile app, we actually know what happens after someone clicks on the email and they go back to the app. We can like build this amazing circle, or we can like close the loop, essentially, and show people the impact of the emails that they're sending in influencing someone's behavior in your product. And so that seemed really compelling. And when we started talking to people about that, they wanted that because it actually moved their business, whereas giving them another analytics dashboard didn't.
0: Yeah, and customer is one of the first tools, if not the first that I ever heard of where the data that you use to send emails could come from inside an app, a SaaS app, a mobile app, I believe you focused on. And at that time, the ESPs that I was using and that were popular, it was like MailChimp and AWeber, and I'd vaguely heard of Infusionsoft and there was constant contact, but those were just marketing plays. They were purely about blasts, email blasts, right? Which are totally not personal, not behavioral, not anything. And customer was the first one where I thought, man, that's, it's, a very clever, it's a very clever use. I love how you, you guys came about that by saying we're going to use analytics to power email rather than send email in order to get, get some type of click-throughs or whatever.
1: I mean, I think that we were coming from a venture-funded startup. And interestingly, after we heard this from the people doing customer development, we looked back at our company and said, oh, wait, that's a problem here too. Our marketing person wants to send emails in MailChimp But she asks the engineering team, like, can you please export a list of people who have done this, but not that? And then there's all of these transactional messages that were in the code of the application that that same marketing person would want to like tweak the language in. And we would have to put a ticket in, I think we were doing like Kanban boards at this point. So we would like write up a note card. And as the head of product and the head of engineering, my co-founder and I would always like deprioritize that note card because it wasn't that interesting to us. And so customer i o, you know, when when we thought about it, if you had the data, you could send that newsletter without having to like ask engineers to export anything. And you if you pulled the content out of the code of the application, you could make changes to your transactional emails and all of your like trigger-based emails without having to ask an engineer to do anything. And so it was all about like strengthening the relationship between your engineering team and your marketing folks or product or whoever was responsible for like talking to customers.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And there was a, it was a big leap and there are obviously a lot of tools that do it today, but we're talking effectively eight years ago that you were working on this. I mean, I have one question for you about designing the logo and and getting business cards. Did you ever use those business cards? Because I kind of chuckle. These days, like, I think I printed some on Moo for one conference that I went to or something. But was that something you look back on and you were like, "Why, why did we do that so early?
1: I think when you start a company, it just doesn't feel real. And I think people print business cards and they make a logo because somehow that makes it more real to them. And when you tell someone, I've started a company and you hand them a business card and it has a logo, maybe that convinces them that you're real too. So I think there's, it's just a lack of confidence in a company actually coming out of the other end of this process. Like People want to start with business cards. And so we, we did as well. And we were going to meetups and other things like that. And uh, going to social events where you're like, hey, we've started a company. Oh, cool. What does it do? It does A and B and C. And here's here's my business card. Contact me. And it's just, it's so silly, but I think it's it's kind of like playing company. And it's part of, it's part of the package of playing company. I don't have business cards now.
0: <laughs> I was going to ask. Yeah. Do you still have business cards? No, no. N- none of us do. Like why? <laughs> Unless you're literally in person with people at conventions and you don't want to do the exchange of your conferences or events or whatever. And you don't want to do the, hey, type this into your phone type thing. There's just not a ton of reason to do it these days. I read through several interviews that you've done over the years. I like to do that to prepare for these interviews. And something you said, and one of them struck me as something I wanted to dig into. You said, so much of what people consider conventional has never felt right to me and our company. Could you expand on that and maybe talk about one or two conventional things that you guys don't do or, or maybe some unconventional things that you do at customer.io?
1: Yeah, I think there's really a balance here. There's things that you want to innovate on. And there's things that you should try to find best practices for. And the things that sort of felt wrong to me was certainly the like venture scaling a company didn't feel right to me. It felt typically what I would see is, well, most venture-funded startups fail, for one. And the approach that I would see founders take when they were scaling a company with venture money was that it was really undisciplined. And they were just spending cash all over the place. But at the end of the day, it didn't matter because they would, they would end up like crashing the company and landing a job working at an investor or as an entrepreneur in residence or whatever, something like that. And, and it just bugs me that essentially like irresponsible behavior can end up with a positive outcome for people. But, but that's kind of how that, that world works. And I just like, I didn't feel like I wanted to participate in that. So certainly this sort of like trying to straddle the line between bootstrapping a company and raising money is something that's, I never felt like we wanted to do either of those things the conventional way that people do those things. And then, you know, certainly we've explored things like how to organize the company and how to, how to run the company. And like, there's, what is it, holacracy is something that people have experimented with. That's somewhere where maybe at this time I was like, oh, well, of course we want to explore things like that. But I've realized that that's not a place you want to be innovative and, and challenge the norm. That's somewhere where, unless your company is all about how companies work, you should probably not challenge the norm there and just use the tried and true methods that have worked over years. And then certainly on stuff like running a remote company, we faced a lot of, skepticism from early customers and our now CMO once once told me that like he worked at a publicly traded company back then and he had to go to bat for us internally to sort of say no we're we're actually a legitimate business because we sort of made this choice to build a remote company and we didn't have like physical offices places so there's a bunch of decisions like that i think i'm a contrarian by nature i like i typically feel like an outsider and i like i like being an outsider i like I like the challenge that that creates for people. Like for, for me personally, I, like, I think struggle is important. And feeling like an outsider means that it's never the easy path. And I think that when you look at technology companies, and I imagine a lot of bootstrappers feel like outsiders in technology, but the sort of happy path is you go to Stanford because you come from legacy or something like that. Like you have like a legacy in into Stanford and then you graduate from Stanford and maybe you work in consulting or you join a startup and then maybe you go to an investor and work at an investor for a while or you work in Google or Facebook and then out of your experience at Google and Facebook, you can like go and raise a really big round of funding. And none of those things felt sort of right to me or particularly accessible to me. And so I kind of, I resist all of it because I kind of see how it works on the happy path, if that makes sense. I'm kind of rambling now, Rob, but...
0: Yeah, no, no, that does make sense. And I think that's where the bootstrapper and the kind of indie funded path, I think why it has so much traction is that most of us are outsiders. Most of us don't go to Stanford. Most of us don't know a venture capitalist who lives down the street from us. Most of us don't grow up in the Bay Area. And I think there's a real appeal to having a path where you don't need to know someone to break into it, you know, where it feels like this, where you are an outsider and that you can't break through those doors. What you and John did is you didn't go the bootstrap route and you didn't go the venture-fronted route. You picked a third path that really, again, so, so few had gone down at that point. Now, there are more companies. I mean, there's this whole, you know, there's, there's Indie.bc now that is effectively funding companies to become profitable. There's Tiny Seed, Accelerator I run, that is funding companies w- with the option to become profitable. And even, you know, I've done about a dozen agent investments on my own. And half of those are in essentially fund strapped companies, right? And fund strapping, so part of the startups for the rest of us drinking game is anytime I say fund strapping, and I always say, it's a term coined by Colin from customer.io. It's always the same thing. And people have given me crap about it, because they're like, what? (laughs) Why do you say that every time? But it was this really novel concept back then. And so I can imagine that trying to stay away from dogma is almost what it sounds like, right? You didn't want to go down the dogma of the VC nor the dogma of bootstrap necessarily. and, And we're thinking, is there another path? I think remote is another big thing that in 2012, 2013, as you're saying, people didn't take you seriously. If you didn't have an office, you know, was that a decision from the start? Like, this is just what we're going to do. And have you ever regretted that? Because I know the value, I've had remote companies, I've had non remote, and I've had kind of half remote companies. And I know the value of being in an office with someone. So talk me through that. It's
1: hard. There are many things which are harder when you're a remote company. And we didn't, we didn't set out to be remote. But We knew the value of deep work at that point. When it was just two of us, we were sitting next to each other, communicating with each other in in a campfire chat. Because I knew that if I had an idea and I wanted to share that idea with John, but he was deep in work, I could just type it in the chat and he would ignore it and continue doing what he was doing and he'd get back to me later. And so we definitely knew the value of deep work. We, We set up to sort of support asynchronous and remote really early on. But really, we we chose to do remote out of necessity, because I couldn't see a path forward building the company in New York City, trying to find the people that we needed and be able to attract them at the salaries we needed to pay to compete against other venture-funded startups in New York City and the investment banks and all of the people who could pay way more than than we could, we had to find a thing that we could offer that none of those people could offer. And to me, the promise, that the value of working for Customer IO as a developer or really any, anyone on the team is you get to do the type of work that you would do if you were in San Francisco or New York, except you can be anywhere. And so, you know, sometimes if let's say you get a co located job in Cincinnati, Ohio, chances are the engineering problems you're going to be working on there are not that interesting, but we have like really interesting engineering problems. And so that appeal, the flexibility of the work and the, the interest of the work is kind of what, what was exciting to me as, and what was our competitive advantage essentially to hire quality people wherever they were in the world.
0: Exactly. And that's the promise and the, the beauty of hiring remote, right? Is you, can, you don't have to pay Barry or New York salaries, you can hire in whatever, the Midwest, the South, in the middle of nowhere, in Washington, and you're able to pay to give someone a high quality, higher standard of, of living without them having to have a long commute.
1: Yeah. And the the goal for us, it wasn't, we couldn't afford New York and San Francisco salaries kind of out of necessity at that point, but that was never, it was never the goal to sort of spend less on on salaries. One of the things that we do now, and we kind of increase salaries as soon as we could, you know, 20 14, 2015, and, and we pay market rates now, and we benchmark to the U.S. national average. Uh, this, I think it's like the 75th percentile of the U.S. national average for all of our roles. And one of the things we're still figuring out is how to make adjustments against that for international. And kind of my philosophy on this is that if you live in a less expensive place, I want to share in that benefit with you the benefit of like cheaper cost of living. If you live in a more expensive place, we'll share in the in the cost as well, but we won't, you know, we won't fully adjust the salary for that more expensive place.
0: So I want to, I think I want to ask one question about, there's so much to talk about, right? Because you've been doing this for for eight years and, and there's a lot of aspects of, of customer that I think are interesting to listeners. But you had mentioned to me offline before we started that, Customer.io is not necessarily ideal for bootstrappers as customers because of, I'm assuming, the pricing, right? It's $150 a month to get started. But that you you guys want to fix that, <laughs> that, you, that you would prefer to, have, to help bootstrappers out. And so you want to talk a little bit about you know, what you want to offer folks who are listening today?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I personally think it's, I think it's a little unfair that there's all these offers and opportunities out there for venture-funded startups. Like AWS has credits you can get. And all of the companies out there kind of do that. So I want to find a way for us to better give back to that community and better better support the Bootstrapper community. I think early on, as we talked about earlier, we started at 10 bucks a month. Over time, we raised our prices. And one of the things that we found by raising our prices is, well, A, it lowered churn. Because at, if you have a really low price point, many people will sign up, but also many people will churn. And our product over time, or or we were pulled by our customers to make the product more and more sophisticated. And so because of that, if you're one person working on a company, the investment required to use customer IO effectively is probably beyond what you want to do. And the sophistication in customer IO is probably beyond what you want to do. But I think that not every bootstrapped company is really looking for to be sort of a solopreneur company for the long run. I think for those companies that want to grow and expand their team and are looking for like a high growth rate, we want customer IO as a product to be accessible to those people so that they get the value that the companies that pay us thousands or 2000 a month, like all of that sophistication, they get that available to them on day one of their company. And so... I think it's like you shouldn't have to use crappy tools, basically. And we think Customer I.O. is a really amazing, flexible tool, and we want more people to have access to it. But it takes investment. So if you're a solopreneur, you probably don't want to do the investment required to get the value out of Customer We're exploring this right now. If this sounds interesting to you after checking out Customer I.O., if you go to customer.io slash bootstrapper. That will give you a little more information and we want to have a conversation with you and figure out how to give you an offer that really helps you get, get started in the product.
0: So circling back, I want to look at some marketing approaches that you guys used in the early days and kind of how you got traction. Because obviously this whole journey is hard, but I think you and I both know that the, the first three months, six months, nine months are really, really trying because you don't know if you've built anything people want. And people are giving you all different kinds of feedback. People are telling you, you're too expensive. You're not, don't have the features, you you know, whatever. And and you're just, you'd have this, it's such a fragile, such a fragile idea. So in the early days, I mean, you've, you know, you've been working on this for eight years, 11 and a half million error now, much less fragile. But in the early days, you've talked about Twitter actually being an early sales channel and that your word of mouth was very strong. Can you talk about how that came about and what basically why that worked and and what worked at the time?
1: So there are a couple there were a couple of things that happened in the early days for us. One this area that we were focused on became kind of a pretty hot space for conversation in tech in general. I think this this guy Paul Stamatiou wrote a blog post about, I think it was like user retention as a service. And so people were just talking about this in general. And what I would do before we had a product to sell, I would see people talking about the problems we were trying to solve on Twitter. And I would reach out to them and I would say, hey, I want to understand this better. Can we talk? I don't have anything to sell you, but we're working on this problem. And so that was that was a way to gather information to figure out if we were building the right thing. And what I found is you can, under the guise of not selling something, trick people into having a conversation with you, but really you're trying to sell them something. And that's, that's happened to me a couple of times as CEO and it's really annoying, but we were like genuinely not able to sell someone anything. And so that made for really useful conversations with future prospective customers. Like I think I talked with at that time, Rand Fishkin was talking about this problem. He introduced me to people on his team at Moz who were working on it, and we did like a customer development call. They never became a customer, but I learned really useful information from that. And like it's pretty typical, we had a a sign up page where people could register their interest. So we we would send people to that page, and and we're getting a decent number of of sign ups there. And the other thing that happened at this time is I I think Patrick McKenzie introduced me to this, this guy, Ramit Sethi. And Ramit runs, I will teach you to be rich. And he agreed to meet us for, for coffee. And he asked like what we were doing to like build an audience and communicate with people as as we were building the audience. And I said, well, we're collecting all these email addresses. And in six months when we launch, we're going to like email them to let them know. And he said... I don't know if these if these are his exact words, but it was something along the lines of you guys are idiots. Like you got to talk to the people whose email addresses that you're collecting because in 6 months when you email them, they're not going to remember you. Figure out how you can provide value for them in the meantime. They signed up for something. And so give them what you can now and then you'll have a that will like help build your audience and b then they'll at least remember you when you launch the thing that you want to sell them. And so that was like hugely valuable advice. And so one of the things that we were able to do, and I don't know how easy or possible it is to do today, because there's just so much content marketing out there. We built our newsletter list and we started writing about email copywriting and these like trigger messages and had a pretty good following of, of early stage companies and CEOs of, of startups, basically, you know, one to five person startups primarily. But that really helped us in the early days. Over time, I wasn't able to keep up, keep myself motivated to continue to write content and do content marketing. And so that fell off a little bit. But fortunately, we were, we've built a bunch of evergreen content and still have a lot of inbound today. But that's really like how the word of mouth engine got kicked off.
0: And that makes sense. And that's, that really has become a playbook. And it was emerging during that time that I'll say 2011 to 2013, 14 content marketing playbook. It sounds like, you know, you and your team by this point, like executed really well on the product, but you also got maybe a little lucky in terms of hitting this thing at an inflection point with the email marketing, not email marketing, but targeted messaging, event-based behavioral stuff. And I think that's something that I've been talking about this or really thinking about this this concept of like, what do I think the keys to success are? I think there's, there's just three things. I think it's this simple. I think it's skill. I think it's hard work. And I think it's luck. And it's a combination of those three. One plus one plus one equals success. But at varying times, if you have a lot more luck, you maybe need less skill and experience if you get lucky to hit it. And if you don't have a lot of luck, and you want to just be purely do something you can repeat over and over without having to make a billion dollar bet, then you need skill slash experience. And a lot of that, and you need a lot of hard work. And it sounds like you had a little of, of all of them, right? Because I'm, I'm just going to assume, in knowing what I know about you, that you guys worked your asses off. So the hard work was there, and you had development skills for sure. And it sounds like, you're, as I just said, like you get a little lucky with that thing, but it sounds like you executed very well on that vision As in addition.
1: The way I think about luck is that it's, it's not evenly distributed. You can't just go anywhere into any market and sort of, there's sort of some luck that you can tap into. There's some areas, there's some products that you could build today where you, you'd be extremely lucky relative to other products. I think we, we were really fortunate in that the space that we picked had a lot of interest at that time. We had a lot of competitors at that time, but it was really nascent. And we were able to build a very immature product and get some traction. And now there's a much larger moat where the expectations of what a product needs to do on day one are much higher. Like our product, when we had five customers paying us 10 bucks a month, A, the reason we were like limiting how many customers we could service and the way that all that stuff worked was my co-founder would write a MapReduce script behind the scenes when someone would set up a campaign. They would write in plain English what they wanted the campaign to do we would manually look at the data that they were sending in to figure out if it was possible. And if it was possible, we'd write a MapReduce, a manual like MapReduce query to find the right people to match the campaign. And so like you could not launch a product today with that approach. Nobody would take you seriously. But I think our, our experience helped us know that that was an interesting space to go after, our experience working in, in tech. And our luck of picking that space uh, has helped us a lot to become successful. And really, just the luck of like who we met along the way
0: there's always a little bit of that in, in all these stories, especially when it 's folks like us coming from the outside who didn't have some kind of in in the space i 'm curious, can you think of a moment or what i 'm trying to get at is like what's what's the the high point of building customer what 's a moment you can think of where you're like, man, this is amazing like I love what i 'm doing here, and i 'm euphoric in this moment
1: i don't have a moment where Everything was like so amazing. And I'm sitting there with a glass of champagne and I'm looking at some like company dashboard and it like ticks over. And then all of a sudden I drink the champagne and feel just like pure joy. I don't have that, but basically every time one of the people on our team like has a child, every time someone like buys a house, every time one of our customers is is like really happy with us and gives us the feedback that like, our support was amazing, or they were able to accomplish something in their job that they hadn't been able to accomplish before. It's sort of those like micro moments that make me feel like a great degree of like satisfaction just deep inside. It's not revenue driven. It's sort of like what having this company and what having this product allows us to do and allows the people touched by it to do in their lives. That sort of creates the lasting feeling of like, success, if, if you can even call it that, or but really just satisfaction.
0: And how about on the flip side? What's been the hardest part? I mean,
1: there, there have been moments, and this knock on wood can't really happen to us anymore, but we made some decisions early on, on like technology choices. And I think in 2015, we had an outage that lasted, it might have been 24 hours. Basically, what, what had happened was we were using this database technology called FoundationDB. It was acquired by Apple. Apple did not, would not let FoundationDB renew any service contracts, and they took the product off the market. And so we were in production with this thing with no migration path, and the service went down. We were hosting the database ourselves, but our database went down, and we couldn't recover it, and we couldn't get any help. And so I thought that was it. I thought like we were going to have to call our customers and say, sorry, but we can't get your data back. We can't bring the service up and you're going to have to take emergency action to like migrate away from customer IO. And like that's the lowest point I've personally experienced in the company because it it was like you can imagine as a business how you could fail your, your customers in the most dramatic way. That is it. <laughs> like the service down, the service goes down all of a sudden, and there's like no recovery, no migration path, no
0: time. That's it. That is devastating. My palms are literally sweaty thinking about it because we, we never had outages that long, but I know exactly I've been in your shoes. How did you get out of this? Don't leave us hanging. How'd you figure it out?
1: <laughs> so we, my, my co-founder was like trying a bunch of things. And I think we had someone else on the engineering team who was, or maybe a couple more people on the engineering team who were helping him on this. But we were just like trying things, trying to figure out how to recover the database. And, and so like one of the key aspects of this is this was a distributed data store. So there were lots of machines essentially running one underlying database and the big problem with that, well, one, it wasn't necessary for the type of business that we had, like customers' data doesn't relate to any other customers' data. Like there was no need to have a big distributed data store to to run our business. It meant that rather than basically there was one single point of failure again. So like the idea with these things is that a server can go down and the database will stay up. But the problem is you still have the single point of failure and when, when a server goes down, there's data needs to get like moved around and it overwhelms the network. We like receive a ton of data from all the time from our customers sending us data. And so that made it like even harder to recover. But what we did was it got bad enough that I was like on Twitter, like, hey, we really need some help. If anyone knows anyone who worked at FoundationDB, please, can you connect us? And I reached out on LinkedIn to like a bunch of people who had worked at that company. And we're now working at Apple. And some people responded to us. And like, I think we got some some help from one or two people there. And we were ultimately able to to recover this whole time. As soon as the acquisition happened, we were immediately trying to figure out how do we migrate away. But it was too much data. Like we couldn't we couldn't do it fast enough. But we we ended up getting things back up and running and like had to really like massage that database like every single day to keep it running while we created a migration path.
0: Wow. Yeah. These are the kinds of stories that I don't know. Those don't make it to the front page of TechCrunch, right? It's the the growth curve of Slack and the, how Zoom, you know, you've mentioned offline, how Zoom goes public and Uber and all this, but like how many people are talking about the realities of what it feels like to grow a startup? Yeah. So Colin, we're coming up on time. If folks want to hear more about you, they can go to Alpha Colin on Twitter. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Rob. Thanks again to Colin for coming on the show. As we wrap up, I had a couple emails that came in that I just wanted to uh, mention here before I take us out. Got an email from Adam, and he was responding to episode four seventy nine, where we talked quite a bit about marketplaces. And I think there may have been a question, you know, about who's talking about building marketplaces. And he says that they have a podcast that covers building their marketplace called Menu, which is M-E-N-Y-U. And the podcast covers their bootstrapping journey. So if that sounds interesting to you, check that out. The other email I received was from Justin, and he said, thank you. He said, I just wanted to say thank you. Your show has been invaluable to me and my co-founders over the years. We've built a tool we're revamping and launching in a few months. But everything from figuring out what LTV for our customers will be to evaluating whether a free model could work for us, you shed insight on a lot of the issues we're going through. Hope we can buy you a beer sometime in appreciation. Thanks for that, Justin. Really appreciate that. And Justin is with with forecastwithak.com. And if you have feedback or questions for the show, you can do what Justin did and email questions at com. I read every email that comes into that inbox. If you haven't left us a five-star review in whatever podcast app that you listen, I'd really appreciate it. You know, we're in Spotify and downcast and overcast and iTunes and all the, I guess it's called Apple Podcasts now. We're in all the places and every five-star review that you leave puts a big smile on my face and it also helps keep me motivated to keep doing the show and it helps us find new listeners. Thanks for tuning in this week. I'll see you next time.